because we're, we're, we can do things that nobody else can do, like cross chain, for example, like do it well, not just like wrapped assets and all this bridging bullshit, but literally working with layer one assets. That is like huge, right? It, it, it changes our mentality of how we think about blockchains to be these like isolated islands that exist across different, you know, separate universes, but rather in a single ecosystem, a single world, a single blockchain system with all these different kind of citizens of this world in a matter of speaking. And they're all there and participating in the same DeFi protocols as everybody else, right? And that becomes a much better system if you ask me. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research, a show brought to you by Hexens, one of the most hardcore security teams in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by some of the most uh, complex protocols in crypto today, such as Polygon and their ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, and more. You'll hear about them a little bit more later in the show. But if you're coming to Permissionless, be sure to stop by their booth at 832 if you're interested in getting a quote. And be sure to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test. Today is August 28th, uh, and we got a great interview lined up with Chad Barreford from ThorChain. Um, but before we dive into that, we do have a special offer for that Permissionless conference that we're hosting here in a few weeks. If you use code 0x30 at discount, you'll get 30% off your ticket. That's going to be a lot of fun. So if you're going to go, be sure to hit us up on Twitter and we can be sure to link up for a beer. Uh, now, as always, we're joined by two BlockWorks research analysts, ZeroX Pibbles and Ren, to discuss the latest market happenings. Uh, Pibbles, why don't I kick it over to you for your hot seat or cool throw? Yeah, so I've got a hot seat this week and it's Balancer. They had a major vulnerability in their pools and I think they've lost like close to like $2 million of TVL that just got exploited, but they also handled it really well. So they notified everybody about it as soon as they could. And their emergency sub DAO was able to mitigate 80% of their TVL from getting exploited. And they definitely like just saved a lot of users. Um, they still haven't released a postmortem about it, but it was just a good indicator that emergency sub DAOs are basically the only solution we have right now for when things like this go wrong. It's actually a really interesting point because the, I don't know the specific details of the bouncer emergency now, but it was good to see in this case that they could actually pause funds because in the recent curve exploit with the Viper reentrancy attack, the curve sub was actually useless because they couldn't prevent like um, LPs from withdrawing capital from their pools, which on the surface seems like a very obvious and good thing, right? Because if you can't prevent people from withdrawing capital, like there's no way for me as a, as a user or an LP in this case to like put my capital uh, in this protocol and then, you know, effectively a centralized entity, you know, locks this, this, my capital within their protocol. Um, and that's kind of the vision that we've always been trying to build in DeFi is this open financial system uh, that doesn't prevent this. But in the case of an exploit, you know, the curve developers and the, the subdow, uh, the emergency subdow is like very aware that having this open could lead to a larger exploit and like pausing withdrawals would actually prevent the exploit from being as bad as it was, uh, giving these, you know, the actual 
white hat team the time needed to save this capital. Uh, so it's like this really interesting dynamic of like, yes, I think more people would agree that decentralization is really what we're after. Um, and that's the world we want to build to. But like there's almost this gray area right now of, yes, that's like the end goal we want to build towards. But is that really the should be should that be the starting point that we're at? Um, so it was, it was good to see that the sub down this uh, this case could actually save the funds. But I don't know. It's kind of like this interesting dichotomy of should everything be maximally decentralized on day one? I feel like people are slowly coming to the realization in crypto that no one can ever write perfect code. You can have 10 different security audits by the best auditing team. You can be in deployment for like three or four years. You can have gone through like tens of billions of trading volume. And there is so probably like a attack vector that one may not be aware of. So yeah, I agree with both of you that in my view, emergency subdows, especially where all of the subdow members or like the voters that can sort of turn it on, have been docs are known. They have a very like clear defined set of actions and like sort of a incidents response plan is a net benefit given how many exploits still take place on a day to day basis. And I wouldn't be too surprised if this is something that's more widely adopted throughout crypto. Um, similar thing for rate limits. I feel like we may see some experiments with rate limits, especially for exploits in the next God knows like how many months or years. Uh, I don't know if this is possible, but like a simple rate limit saying like an individual wallet address should not be able to withdraw more than 10% of the protocol's TVL per hour or something like that. I think it would be very interesting to see in action. I agree with you there. And it's interesting because you said people probably are coming to the realization, but the reality of that is that's really users where most developers would probably agree. I knew this from the start, right? Uh, and most developers would probably agree you can't write bug-free code. That's just the, the fact of the matter. Uh, and we see this in web too, too. Uh, you know, the liquidation company Kroll that's overseeing BlockFi, FTX, and I think in maybe Celsius, but I'm not positive there. They, they actually got hacked. Uh, their database of user data got uh, exploited. And, you know, of course, this is not quite a financial thing. This is more so uh, a privacy thing and, and data privacy. And now they know the list of names and the value uh, held by each of those individuals uh, in these liquidation proceedings. So it's not just crypto that experiences this, but uh, being that you are holding financial wealth in this case, uh, in these protocols and in these smart contracts, it just makes the stakes a little bit higher. Yeah, hopefully home addresses weren't leaked there too. That would be a little bit uh, disconcerting, <laughs> but I'll keep my fingers crossed there. I think that's a good spot to uh, hop into my cool throne for the week. This one's a little bit stale because we record the intros on Monday, but I think it was last Tuesday, Coinbase announced that they took a, a stake in Circle. Um, so basically Circle is going to retain the full governance rights and you know issuance slash burning of uh, USDC. So they're kind of their own governing body at this point. Beforehand, there is the Centra Consortium, and that's going to be winding down. That was established around five years ago or so. And under that agreement, anyone who was within it, which included Coinbase, they earned the interest earned on the underlying collateral uh, based on their pro rata share of USDC originated on their platform. So that stays in place. Coinbase will still earn 100% of the underlying interest revenue earned on USDC on um, Coinbase's platform. But now they'll also get 50% of all interest income earned on all USDC outstanding. So obviously that can earn a ton of money for Coinbase, the company. Um, 
pretty big development and uh, it comes at a time when USDC market cap is literally down only and USDT market cap is at basically an all-time high ever since the USDC DPEG back in March of this year. So pretty interesting development. It's going to be kind of um, cool to see how it affects um, Coinbase's earnings. I don't think it's going to have any material impact on their Q3 earnings, but I think it goes into effect in Q4. But correct me if I'm I'm wrong on any of this, guys. But uh, does anyone have any takes there? Down only trend that you mentioned is such a good thing to point out. Since the start of the year, uh, USDC has lost about 40% of its market cap or about $20 billion and now sits just around $24, $25 billion. Uh, And this is like a really important, important metric to track because... U.S. investors are going to likely onboard through Coinbase and thus be holding USDC. So it's kind of like a decent way to track the value flowing in and out of at least through crypto from the U.S. side, um, which ultimately it's a quite a large capital market. If it's the largest capital market. So it is an important uh, indicator in some regard there. Uh, and I t- tweeted this chart out the other day and uh, I can't remember who it was that responded to me, but it was just like a, a great back and forth of, yeah, sure, like that's a really important chart. But if that's all you were investing based on, you would have missed you know, a 50 to 70% move off the lows, uh, which is a, is a great point. But I think a lot of those lows came from like large liquidations during the FTX implosion. Um, and now we just have this like totally, total different liquidity landscape and in comparing the two times. So I think we're going to need to see a bottom and reversal in that chart before we can really be excited about a bull, bull market, in my opinion. But I think this is a great way to to take a step in getting there. I think USDC is kind of finally... You know, there's these two these two powers in Jeremy Allaire uh, from Circle and, and of course Brian Armstrong from from Coinbase, and I just envision them sitting down at like in a dark room with like a 30 foot long table, each one at either end, and having a conversation of like, all right, we're moving this thing forward. And I know in that conversation, what does the USDC sitting on base count as? Is that on platform for Coinbase, or is that on off platform and therefore being uh, earning revenue for for Circle itself rather than for Coinbase. And I'm super curious to figure out where the that discussion landed because you can imagine, I think we've talked about this on the pod before, so I'll try to keep it short, but if you could make Base, the L2, its own little safe haven for USDC, whether it be like gas-free transfers or rebates for gas transfers or anything to encourage holding USDC on Base, you can imagine this little safe haven there. Um, and of course, that just starts racking up the the fees that Coinbase ultimately earns from the uh, the interest earned by the collateral. So really excited to kind of get an answer towards that. And I don't know when we're going to get it, but I'll be watching. I heard from sources that the Jeremy and the Brian conversation was mostly about Brian saying, hey, I'm bolder than you. Can you give me a larger equity stake in a circle? Um, but anyway, on, on a more serious note, I think one of the things I think about is what would it take for USDC to sort of regain market share compared to Tether, right? Tether's been making moves every quarter. They put out an attestation where they're making $1 billion in raw profits. Recently, Paolo sort of tweeted about their energy efforts in, I forgot which country, and it looks pretty crazy. It, it seems like they're making pretty heavy investment there. And I think the, the wild card for me, I know this is a bit of a meme term, is real-world assets. If you look at most of like the sort of tokenized bond offerings, whether that's treasury bills, or something else, most of that occurs to USDC rather than USDT. And I think we have to remain cognizant that a large amount of USDT is still on Tron. And I don't think any of us in the Western world has a clue of what really goes on on Tron, to be very honest. Um, So yeah, I think 
we'll, we'll slowly make the way there in terms of USC being like USDC being the institutional sort of stable coin of choice. And I think another thing that may be partially playing into this USDT market cap dominance is gambling. I think in the terms and conditions of USDC, it's pretty clearly stated that gambling is one of the things that's not allowed to do with USDC, if I'm not wrong. Um, and obviously gambling as a use case has took off uh, in the bear market with projects like Robit and others. And so that could also be a partial contributor to USDT's sort of market cap outperformance over USDC. Yeah, that's a good call out, Ren. I actually didn't know that thing about gambling, but it's hard for me to pick out like what will turn the needle. Like when does USDC market cap start growing again? I mean, we've had a bit of a rally uh, throughout the year, so you'd naturally expect stablecoin supply to go down. But if you pull up a market cap chart, it literally looks like it's pre-programmed, like just constantly down into the right. So it'll be interesting to watch what turns that around. But Dan, I know you got a, a cool throne kind of closely related to this, so maybe I'll kick it over to you for that. Yeah, yeah. It kind of bleeds into the idea of USDC and uh, Circle and Coinbase ultimately reaching an agreement because what that does is enable USDC to come into the cosmos, a core core piece that needed to happen, uh, almost like a prerequisite for a DYDX to launch its app chain. Uh, and Winter, you would actually just post a governance proposal live uh, in, the, in the forums, at least, uh, that is basically just talking about the uh, the official migra- migration for the token to move from an Ethereum smart contract as an ERC-20 over to the app chain itself. Uh, so, you know, they recently commissioned the construction of a one-way bridge contract that will enable this migration. So basically, users would deposit their tokens, um, and then that would ultimately get read by the validators on the DYDX chain and allow for the minting of new assets on the app chain itself. And this is really just a good sign of, of progress in the migration to the app chain. Uh, I think it's like a healthy signal that we can probably expect a, a Q4 timeframe launch for DYDX. Uh, the on-chain vote for this proposal is expected to get pushed uh, in the week of September 1st, so just a few days from now. And um, yeah, like I said, it's really just a natural migration, something you'd expect to see. And ultimately, like this has to happen because the DYDX token will be the governance token, uh, as well as the staking token and gas token for the DYDX app chain itself. Um, so ultimately here, kind of excited to be getting closer to the DYDX chain launch, which is a huge moment for the Cosmos ecosystem as a whole. This is the first time a major brand has shifted to an app chain. And it's not only big for the Cosmos ecosystem, but it's huge for the app chain thesis. If DYDX can take this moment and prove that this construction of their platform is the best product for its users and the best operation um, as a a crypto protocol as a whole, then I think you're going to see a lot of other products protocols really be like, okay, DYDX has legitimized the app chain thesis and proving in real time that it, it's working. You know, Maybe that means they get more users, they get more traction, or even something more you know, financial, like, well, they're actually cr- creating revenue that's flowing back to the stakers, and the token actually has a purpose being a staking and governance token rather than just like a meaningless governance token we see uh, with a lot of smart contract-based uh, DeFi application. So huge, huge test. Really excited to watch it go forward. And again, this is really just like a healthy, a healthy signal that everything's uh, moving the right direction. Yeah, I'll also comment as the TX, TA experts say, uh, there's a bullish engulfing candle on the DYDX weekly. And it's thanks to these winter mute proposals. So we will be following it with a close eye for the rest of the month. 
Do you guys know if the V3 deployment will stay operational if it's going to get deprecated? You'd think they'd want to keep it live because, I mean, if people want to use it, like go for it. Might as well. It's generating plenty of fees. And then as a follow-up, do you guys happen to know if that fee revenue generation will accrue to the DYDX treasury over on, on Cosmos? I feel like this thing's going to be pretty messy, honestly. Sam Martin thinking critically. Uh, I actually don't know. And if I was taking my best educated guess here, uh, I would say the StarkNet uh, version will continue to run for the near term with the plans of deprecating it. Um, you know, running a centralized sequencer is not cheap. So I can't imagine that they'd do that for no reason. And I think they'd ultimately want to start putting all of the activity on the new app chain. Plus, like, you know, obviously market making is a huge piece here. So I'm sure there'll be next to no liquidity on, on the StarkNet deployment as well. On that note, I, I wonder how much like infrastructure market makers have set up for this sort of new app chain and how much that differs to DYDX V3. I, I would imagine that there is some sort of effort needed to migrate it over and it isn't just like I click a button, I change my wallet, you know, from like StarkNet to Cosmos and like my market maker works perfectly fine there. But similarly on the trading side of things, I think one thing that people have been paying attention to for DYDX V4 is MEV and sort of how the community is going to deal with, I guess, MEV or validators who are partaking in MEV. There's been like a few proposals out there. I think the most notable one is an academic paper by Chorus One. I haven't fully understood it yet, um, but so far it seems like the solution is basically the community will have like an open transparency dashboard. They'll be able to see which uh, validator is like sort of on average capturing like a larger spread or in some sense taking more MEV from traders and then going from there. Um, I, ha I don't have a like fully thought out idea of whether that's the optimal solution, but it does seem like that's like the only solution being proposed right now. Um, but definitely will be interesting to see if more sort of like prop DEXs or DEXs as a whole move towards the app chain. And DYDX V4 would sort of be a first iteration of how these app chains may deal with MEV. Yes, all $27 of MEV on DYDX. I actually, there was a cool, uh, I think, uh, effort dropped in our analyst chat today. I think uh, Osmosis is doing some cool MEV stuff with, with Skip and that plays into your joke, Pibbles. I follow that MEV bot too on Osmosis that shows all all thirty dollars of daily MEV. But nonetheless, kind of cool to see him actually trying to like capture and internalize sex to dex arbs and and you know embedding it within the protocol itself. So I'll be watching that closely as well. Yeah, I think that's a good time to transition to the last hot seat cool zone of the day. And this week I have a cool zone which is base optimism and sort of Coinbase that whole cabal for lack of a better term. Last week, it was announced that BASE, as part of its commitment to decentralization and sort of contributing to the OP collective, will be donating 15% of sequencer profits or 2.5% of sequencer revenue to public goods funding or more or less like the optimism collective to spend. So in those two numbers, you can sort of imply that they're expecting a 16.7% sequencer profit margin. But in reality, sequencer profit margins are much higher than that already today. They probably hover around 30% and will probably go even higher after EIP 484 for goals live, hopefully sometime in Q4 this year. And 
in return, base or Coinbase specifically is getting 2.75% of OP supply. This is going to be vested over six years. Uh, I think there are certain terms and conditions attached, but those weren't made public. So as of today, that amounts to roughly $180 million in OP. It'll be interesting to see that appear on Coinbase's balance sheet and how that is reflected today, you know, like, Today, Coinbase has roughly $5 billion in cash. It wouldn't be too crazy if five years down the road, Coinbase has $1 billion in OP tokens and TradFi analysts are sort of wondering, how do I price this on the balance sheet? Um, but I think one thing that I wanted to note was that this feels, this kind of feels like Ethereum's version of the Cosmos Hub, you know, like Cosmos Hub makes deals with consumer chains in return for sort of validated provider security. These chains return a certain portion of transaction fees, MEV, soft fees, whatever. They just um, pass some of that revenue back to the Cosmos Hub. And it kind of feels like the exact same deal here, you know. Uh, I think people are asking, like, how controlling this super chain is going to be. And I think that's a very fair question. Will you sort of, like, be forced to adopt to a certain standard? Like, will you be, like, community shamed if you don't give more than, like, 10% of your sequence of profits back to the Optimism Collective if you don't donate to public goods funding, you know. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of interesting social dynamics that we'll see as the OP stack grows, which, to be fair, it has grown pretty significantly in the past half a year or so. You know, you have Avo, you have Lyra, you have, like, OP BNB, Farcaster coming to OP Worldcoin, and it really seems like the OP stack or ecosystem as a whole is kind of slowly taking off and then there's a whole host of other governance issues that optimism has to deal with right uh, one of the blog articles talked about different houses one is a token house one is a citizen house sort of like a duo token governance model that lido first suggested a few months ago one has the right to vote one has the right to veto any vote that has passed um and yeah it just seems like there's a lot of interesting governance dynamics that are going on in optimism yeah, I really like the uh, the law of chains that got released. And um, I think this combined with just everything else that's been going right for optimism this summer is like OP is actually sitting at like a justified valuation, in my opinion, when you compare it to other things. Like it's, it's fully diluted Val is now half of Solana's fully diluted Val. And I think that's fitting. And I think you could flip that if you wanted to. Yeah, I strongly agree with you there, Spencer. And I also just think the most important takeaway here is the precedent. Like, obviously, base alone, like $3 million or so annualized and money going back to public goods funding for the Optimism Collective, like, yeah, that doesn't really move the needle. But if you have 10 or 50 or 100 different chains on the OP stack and they're all giving 5 to 15%, that could really amount to a lot. And I'm a little skeptical about, you know, <laughs> us folks on the Internet's ability to actually effectively allocate this capital for public goods funding but i think it's a cool attempt to at least try it a hundred blockchains i am so bearish on it it's not gonna happen that's ridiculous and there's no inter cross there's no native interoperability solution that gets me so mad because we're going to end up in this such a fractured ecosystem when we're on the cusp of having working zk tech and i know optimism is building canon which is going to be their solution to kind of swap out the not even existing fraud proof mechanism for uh, zero knowledge proving. And 
there's still a lot to be to be figured out there. Like with you know, we can barely run a prover in a, an efficient manner right now, let alone actually decentralize this process. But I really, I'm just so curious in my head. Like, okay, let's say you just picked up all the the um, the chains that are you know ran you listed in the Avo, Lyra, Worldcoin, etc. That are all building in this optimism stack. And let's just say that was happening on a zk stack. It doesn't even matter which one. I'm not. I'm no interest in picking a winner. But one that like building with the zk stack gives you the ability to have async composability across all of these chains, making value transfer happen without any additional trust assumptions, which is a very important feature. You are not now with, like having to rely on third party bridges. You're offloading that risk onto the users. Um, so. I just I, I get I get a little stuck there because all right now we have a hundred different rollups and it's a pain in the ass to get from one to the other and you have no composability between them it just doesn't seem like a great end vision for me. Um, that's 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 really where my concern is now. But I, Sam, I know you feel strongly about things changing, so I, I want to hear the rebuttal every time. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a strong rebuttal, but I guess I would just ask you, you know, how many teams are announcing their L3 deployment on this ZK stack XYZ, not calling out ZK Sync's actual ZK stack. But I mean, just if you look at the actual pledges and commitments and things that are actually happening, it's happening on the OP stack. And an interesting thing that came from the, uh, the law of chains, uh, as they call it, is the requirement to basically support shared upgrades. So I think the, the the main goal that they're trying to accomplish here is just aligning everyone, trying to build public goods funding so they can like actually find problems to these solutions and then making sure that everyone has the ability um, and accessibility to the tech that you know it actually funds and, and getting it upgraded to every single chain that's using, using the OP stack. So I don't know, I just generally like their approach better, but not to say that, um, their approach to scaling is actually better on a technical level. Yeah, you're absolutely right about where the attention and building is happening. And I, I actually, I'm trying to figure out this more precisely. But to me, there still seems to be some like technical blockades around with like building on a hyper chain in the case of ZK, uh, ZK Sync or some of these other ZK solutions, right? Like we haven't seen anybody do it yet at all. And I really am like trying to trying to dissect into why, and I think we've talked about this on the pod before. But like zk sync zk stack, for example, they still have the timestamp issue. Um, they actually just put out a report that that is expected to begin being fixed in September, but it takes about fifty days to catch. Long story short, but it takes about fifty days for the upgrade to get pushed live. So starting from September first, add fifty days. You know, a month and a half, two months later, uh, that's when you know, it'll actually be fixed. So then things that rely on a timestamp, which is basically any uh, liquidity mining programs, for example, uh, and many other things as well, but that's just a very easy example. Then they can actually start to deploy there and like exist on these chains. So like the infra still doesn't seem like it's really there yet, um, which is kind of interesting. You got two different models. Like you have the optimism model. It's like get the users, get the chains, get the attention, and then figure out everything else like, like from a technical standpoint, whereas the, the ZK teams are going, figure out the tech stack and the users will come. So it's really going to be fun to watch these uh, two different approaches kind of play out in real time. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you, Dan. But I think that's a good place to end it. We're actually going to hop into the interview with Chad Barreford, the technical lead at uh, ThorChain. Dan, unfortunately, isn't able to make it, but uh, you get Matt this time. So we'll see you over there. All right, everyone. We are joined today by Chad Barreford, one of the core developers of ThorChain. Uh, Chad, thanks for coming on again. I think you're one of our... Only repeat guests, actually. Oh, if I'm the if I'm the first repeat, it's an honor. 
<laughs> there we go. I love it. Well, there's a lot of exciting things happening in ThorChain right now. So I wanted you to walk us through just kind of at a higher level, like what is ThorChain lending? You know, you guys are claiming 0% interest, no liquidation loans. That's kind of like the headline offering. But if you could just go into a, a high level overview, that'd be great. Yeah. So lending is a, is a brand new protocol we just launched on our, on, uh, on our network. Um, this, what makes it very unique and very different is a whole host of things. Uh, you touched on a few of those things being the fact that it's no interest rates uh, and that there's no uh, liquidations at all and that there's no expiration on these loans is really good. But it's also what makes it very unique is that it's like the first like cross-chain lending pro profile, uh, protocol specifically for non-EVM chains like Bitcoin, Doge, Litecoin, even Atom, you know, like just all these other um, assets out there that are not really touched by DeFi in general now have access to an actual decentralized lending protocol for them fully validated fully transparent like all that stuff it's like that in itself should be a huge news story just the fact that you can now get a decentralized loan on bitcoin yeah absolutely and i was also hoping you could just kind of give us a another high level overview because like i mentioned we had you on like seven or eight months ago and ThorChain is kind of unique in that as TVL scales, it's security scales as well. It's not really just a vanity metric. So I was hoping you could kind of go into that at a high level as well, just for context for the listeners. So um, so because ThorChain is a very different protocol than everything else you've seen, uh, it, it, it is securing ex exogenous capital, meaning, meaning it's securing assets that are external to itself, like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, like uh, Doge, like Litecoin, uh, Bitcoin Cash, so forth, no, AVAX, a bunch of different assets. So because it's securing external jet, like assets like those, it, it doesn't have an infinite, infinite supply of security, right? Like something within its own ecosystem, its own, uh, its own blockchain can just secure things arbitrarily because it doesn't need to secure things externally. So we need to do something different, right? And so what we talk about a lot in our, in our community is talking about uh, the um, economic security of the network, meaning that, that the validators that run this network that, that manage these assets on these external blockchains that they always have more to lose than they have to gain right just to make sure that they don't just like you know run a bunch of nodes you know one, one person runs like a bunch of nodes by himself or herself and then just like rugs a bunch of assets and like walks away with you know being a multimillionaire and all this kind of stuff that's bad obviously right it goes without saying so what we do in our design is to make sure that whatever assets these validators have access to they have bonded up with the rune, rune, rune being the base asset of our network. They've bonded with more rune in value than the value they have to steal. And that's a really, really core concept of how ThorChain is designed from the ground up to make sure that like, that even if you get past all the code problems, even if you get past all the, uh, the uh, security measures we have in place, you also have economic security as well, something, another layer to get past, which makes it generally pretty, pretty hard to do. So I know for ThorFi lending, it's a little bit complicated in the life cycle of a loan, like in the process of actually opening and closing it. If I believe if I'm not mistaken, there's actually eight swaps involved or something like that and a stable coin called yep. Tor. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just giving us like a high level walkthrough of what it looks like to actually open and loan a close. Sorry, open and close a loan. And uh, how is this stable coin used and why are eight swaps necessary? Yeah. So um, when you open up a loan with ThorChain, you are starting with some sort of like real external asset, right? Let's just take Bitcoin as the, as the example. Layer one, this is not wrapped Bitcoin. This is like literally like layer one real Bitcoin on the, the Bitcoin blockchain. 
And so you you send that asset from your wallet to one of the wallets that is that is owned and controlled by the network itself. And the first thing the network does is it swaps that Bitcoin into room, right? It's just a little straight up little swap there. That's, 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 that's one trade right there. And then there's a second swap where it swaps that rune into what we call a derived asset, right? Which is similar to um, a synthetic in, in a matter of speaking. And so in that process, it's actually burning that rune and it's minting the synthetic, right? Minting the derived asset. So that is a, uh, a double swap in its first uh, part to to deposit the collateral into the network, right? So now at this point, the lending protocol itself receives what we call Thor BDC, which is the derived asset. So you start with layer one Bitcoin, you double swap it from, from layer one Bitcoin into Rune, Rune into the Thor BDC. Thor BDC is the thing that you actually, the network actually receives as the, as the collateral. And that becomes like the first two trades. Then at the next point, now that we've received your, your collateral, say the collateral is worth $30,000, let's just say, and let's say there's a there's a there's a CR of 200% or an LTV of 50%, right? Now the network has to pay you your debt, right? And the network always utilizes your debt in the form of a stable. We we call this Tor and with our own network. And Tor is just basically a basket of stables. In a matter of speaking, we have several stable coins on the on the network: USDC, USDT, uh, Dai, you know, whatever it is. And so the network utilizes these, the, the pricing of all of these stables on its own network to figure out what the value is of, uh, of Tor, right, relative to the, the quantity of Rune. So it starts with, by minting the Tor. It then burns it, swapping it into Rune, like minting the Rune. The Rune then goes swap to some asset that you want to receive. Let's just call it uh, USDC, for example. Swap to the USDC, and the USDC gets sent to you. So in that whole process of opening a loan, you've actually made four swaps in total. Two double swap to deposit the collateral, a double swap to get the, the debt out, the, the, what you're receiving. And then when you're doing, when you're closing the loan, you're doing this whole thing in reverse. You're doing double swap in back into Tor. Tor gets burnt. That's your, your debt asset of the, of the loan itself. And then you're double swapping the collateral, Thor BDC, back into Layer 1 BDC again. And so when you open a loan, you're going through four trades. And when, you, when you're closing loan, you're going through another four trades to make it all happen. That's a pretty complicated. Hopefully I did an okay job explaining it. That was great. Thank you. And then I guess sort of maybe the, one of the points of this process is you remove a lot of rune from the circulating supply. That's the difference between the, the notional value of the collateral and the actual notional value of the debt taken out. So I guess if I'm not mistaken, then as you know, the amount borrowed increases, more rune is taken from the circulating supply and burnt? Yes. Well, the, the, the value the network has, because in this context, the network is, is the lender. Like most of the time in DeFi, you have the borrower and you have a lender. And it's usually two people that are taking both sides of this kind of like this, this relationship, if you want to call it that. So somebody's putting up the ether, the ETH to, to, to lend and somebody's borrowing that ETH on Aave or your compounds or something of that such. But in this protocol, the, the protocol itself is the lender, not an individual. And so how the protocol benefits from the scenario is that it just creates a lot of buy and burn pressure on the Rune asset. And so inherently when you are opening up a loan, even if you were never even touching the Rune asset as part of that process, like you as a borrower, you are actually creating a large amount of buy and burn pressure on the Rune asset. How do you think about the risk that if the rune if the price of rune goes down uh, in when related to the price of the debt asset, then potentially maybe more rune would need to be printed to pay back the user's collateral? If that's not, if I'm not mistaken, 
So are there any like yep. risk mitigation techniques or things that you guys are doing to help make sure that more rune is actually burned than printed? Yes. So uh, there's a few things. For one point, we, we cap this system, right? This is a new, very novel and, and experimental concept. And so we're not just YOLOing into it like, you know, a lot of what DeFi does in, in this industry. And so there's a, there's a specific low cap. I think it's like 1% of the supply of Rune itself. So it, there's no concern of it going to some ballooning, some large amount of trillions of Rune, whatever the hell it is, in part because it's only uh, um, um, capping the amount of loans that can be taken out to a small, very small amount. That's the first part. The second part is, uh, we do have a, what we call a circuit breaker, right? And so the, the supply of rune today is 500 uh, million rune. That's like the max cap, right? So it's hard cap, so it's hard cap at that number. And that still true, is true even with this, with this protocol launching. It's never been changed in the history of the network. Actually, technically, rune started off as a billion dollar, uh, billion rune uh, cap and was, was half of it was burnt like two and a half, three, three years ago. But that's beside the point. And so... Uh, in the event that something happens, in which case we start minting a lot of room for some reason or cause, the and the network gets to that 500 million like kind of marker, what happens at that point is that the lending system itself is, is paused in terms of your ability to open new loans. Current loans can always be closed. That's perfectly fine. And any additional room that's required to mint beyond that 500 million does not actually get mint. It gets basically borrowed from the reserve. And the reserve is like about... I think it's about 30 or 35% of the supply of rune is inside the reserve itself, right? Inside of the, the network's reserve. And so we have this huge kind of backstop in that, in that context as well. But it's unlikely we would even get to that place just because where we would actually burn through all that just because there's such a small cap place on these things uh, on terms of being able to open these loans to begin with. We're just experimenting with this idea initially just to try it out, see what works, what doesn't work and see how effective it is at accomplishing the goal that it's designed to accomplish. But I would think that in general, it's like it's unlikely in the long term that, that there would be a net mint of rune uh, on the protocol. Of course, that can happen from day to day or even month to month. But generally speaking, in the long term, that's not likely to happen. There's a few reasons for that. One is there's this whole, a whole idea in, in traditional finance called the small cap theorem. And this is basically the idea that like that small cap assets are more volatile, are more likely to go up a lot more in a bull market and down a lot more in a bear market than a large market cap asset. So Bitcoin being the largest market cap asset in our industry right now, which is, I don't know how many, was it a trillion now or whatever the hell the number is, it's a lot larger than, than Rune. And so Rune will uh, just have a natural thing to outperform Bitcoin in bull markets and underperform Bitcoin in bear markets. And that's nothing specific to Rune. It's just like any asset that's like less, that has a market cap less than Bitcoin. That's just like a general thing of every bull and bear market you can see. That's, that's true across the board. And so during bull markets, it's very unlikely that, that Rune would underperform Bitcoin just because of that theory uh, by itself. But also the idea that like runes can be printed during the bear markets is actually much more less, less likely. And that is because when your collateral is uh, falls below the value of the debt. So if you start off with $30,000 in collateral and you receive $15,000 in debt and then the market goes bare uh, and the debt's always a dollar, right? So it's always stable at $15,000. Your collateral can drop below low and, and drop below it. So now your collateral is worth, let's just call it $5,000 instead of $30,000, right? We don't have liquidations. Either, so we actually don't need to do liquidations. It actually doesn't cause insolvency in our network like it does in any of the lending protocol. But what happens at this point is that this loan is no longer really closable, right? Because who's going to spend $5,000, sorry, 
So who's going to spend fifteen thousand dollars to get back five thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin? Like that's just a that's, a that's a bum deal, right? In fact, if you were actually to do that on the protocol, it technically allows you to do it if you wanted to. But if you were allowed to do that, it would actually net burn rune even in that scenario. So because the market itself in bear scenarios that the that the value of the collateral drops down significantly relative to the dollar, it's very it's it's there's resistances or uh, or uh, frictions to actually minting rune in the bear market because of this. And because of that, you have this asymmetric relationship with minting and burning. There's a tendency to mint and less of a tendency, uh, a tendency to burn and less of a tendency to mint rune in the bear market. That makes a lot of sense. To some extent, it seems like taking out a loan sort of acts like a perpetual call option where like, if I have the ability to at any point go buy back my collateral. So if let's say like, you know, I put up one Bitcoin, let's say it's 30K, I take out a 15,000 die loan, Bitcoin, you know, falls in price, goes down to 15K, and eventually in a year from now, it's at 50,000. Okay, now because I'm still able to, I'm going to go repay my loan and get my Bitcoin back. So it's almost like this call option. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on if people use it in that way, and if that if that's something that you guys have thought about before. Yes, of course. Um, we've definitely thought about that, and that's definitely one of the use cases for this particular design. If people want to use it in that way, go right ahead. Have fun. You know, uh, go with it. Um, but it's accurate to say that, that it, it's like a perpetual call option. But there is a difference here, right? And that is that typically in a call option, there's somebody's a winner and somebody's a loser, one or the, one or the other, right? But in this design, it's not the, it's not, it doesn't work that way. It's actually a quadrant of four, right? So there's, there's a win-win, a lose-lose a lose-win, and a win-lose, right? And so any one of these things can happen. So either the, the protocol loses and the user, the borrower loses, both of us win, or one of us wins and one of us loses, one of these kind of things. And so because of that, like, just because you as a, as a, as a user as a perpetual call use it and are successful in doing so, doesn't necessarily mean that the protocol is lost in that scenario. In fact, protocol could have and most likely have won in that scenario as well, right? So it's, it's not quite that simple as a call, a call option. It behaves like one, but it's mechanics underneath the hood are quite different. Am I right in assuming that this doesn't really affect the profitability of uh, LPs and savers in ThorChain? Because really the main value creative uh, prospect of it is really just the rune uh, burn and mint? Uh, no, I wouldn't agree with that. Just because when you're entering the loan and closing the loan, there are four swaps in total that are swapped through the layer one pools, which generates revenue for the LPs. And then the LPs are also, for the most part, ex unless you're a saver, LPs are on the dual side LPs are exposed to the room price. So they're getting value from the, from the room price being um, uh, stacking some value from that. So I don't think it's necessarily true to say LPs don't benefit from it, but I think, cause I think they actually do. Yeah, no, that actually makes a ton of sense. And then, so you said that there's this 500 million rune hard cap. So what happens to borrowers with open positions if that hard cap is reached? Just, you know, they sit in their positions and, and wait for the market turmoil to play out or, or what exactly happens? No, I mean, anybody who's a borrower can, can exit their, their loan whenever they choose to, even if we hit the 500 cap. The only happens there is that we, we move from minting rune to borrowing rune, rune from the reserve, which is like, a uh, hundred and I think 160 million rune or something like this. It's like a huge quantity, right? So it's still there. We just start borrowing from the reserve instead of just minting it. So the cap just stays at that 500 
uh, million mark. If the event happens that we do get to that place where we get to that 500 million uh, cap or whatever, then we have to decide as a, as, a, as a community of like, well, maybe this lending idea didn't work out the way we wanted to do, or maybe it can work out just because we, if we adjusted this thing or tweaked that thing or made a change here, whatever that might be. And so there's a good chance that we, the community as a whole will have to de determine whether or not we want to just sunset the feature entirely and just kind of let it, let that feature particularly die out, or we will make some adjustments to it. it that was something we've learned in the process of experimenting with this idea and say, you know, what, if we made this tweak or made that change, this whole thing would be a lot, a lot, a lot better. So we don't really know that until we actually try it out, right? We should always experiment with, with, with DeFi and always encourage the industry as a whole to always experiment and try new, new ideas. I want to give a quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZKEVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day -day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history, so it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously, and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership, and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io. Find them in the links in the show notes, or reach out to them at Permissionless. They'll be at booth 832. Uh, but without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. Would you mind explaining the concept of vpool depths? and how that impacts borrowers and like why that might mean that there's better or worse times to close a position or open a position? Yeah, yeah. So very good question. So when you're swapping from Rune to a virtual, uh, to a derived asset, and when I mentioned the Thor BDC, Thor F, like these kind of things, the pool that you're swapping with is a virtual pool. It doesn't actually really exist. It's just there's an, there's an Oracle used from the layer one counterpart to determine what the, what the ratio is between the rune and the Thor, the virtual rune and virtual Thor BSE in that particular AMM, just to create you the, the, the price point, right? And so that pool is used to help mitigate against, uh, against a couple of mitigating uh, factors. For one, and the, what we don't want people to do is to um, do what we saw like in mango markets is probably a good example, where somebody was able to price manipulate an asset, you know, take Bitcoin, for example, push Bitcoin's price on, on the network to term being $30,000 or $26,000, whatever the current price is, and push it up to half a million dollars. Then deposit a bunch of Bitcoin, tell the network it's worth millions of dollars when it's actually worth you know, $50,000 or something like this, and then get out a huge amount of debt, much more value than the collateral. That would be bad. That'd be price manipulation. That would be a terrible situation. So the virtual pool plays a role in helping protect the network from that manipulation. So the virtual pool's depth is always relative to the layer one. So here's the virtual pool, here's the layer one, and their starting point is at basically the same depth, same, the same size. And so the more volatility, the more trade volume you see in the layer one pool, the more shallow the virtual pool becomes. And the more shallow the virtual pool becomes, the more fees that you pay on those swaps and trades through that pool. And so if you actually were to price manipulate and push Bitcoin's price to $500,000 like this, the virtual pool becomes so shallow that you couldn't pass much value through that thing anyway, which means it wouldn't be profitable for anybody to actually make that action. 
The second thing that it helps the network on is it creates the correct incentives to put a to put a break on any attempts to do a bank uh, a bank run, right? So in, take Terra UST for example, the way that was designed was that it was to fo foster more people to run for the door, not to cause less people to run for the door, right? So, for example, um, Terra UST talked about having backing the UST with I think it was like six billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, right? On the on the face value, this sounds like a really good idea, backing with a real asset, right? But in reality, it actually, it's counterproductive to the to the peg. So that means that as soon as there's some trouble going on, people are going to look at that uh, network and say, "Well, there's 40 or 50 billion, whatever the hell the number was, of UST. There's six billion dollars worth of Bitcoin effectively backing at this point. If I get out now, I'll be fine. I get I'll get my dollar, my full you know one to one ratio dollar. Be good. I get my Bitcoin, right? But if I wait until tomorrow, all that Bitcoin's going to be gone." So you're creating the incentive for people to exit the system now and to, 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 to bank run the entire system. And you don't want that, obviously, for obvious reasons. And so what this does is like as there's volatility through that layer one pool because people are trading through it, they're closing their positions, a lot of trade volume happening, arbitrage, blah, 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 all these things. The virtual becomes very shallow, which means that the fees increase, right? It's very similar to like – think about it like, um, like Bitcoin. Like when you do a transaction on Bitcoin, the gas fee or transaction fee, I should say, actually, is relative to the demand of, of the block, right? And sometimes it's really cheap and sometimes it's really expensive. Depends upon how much demand there is. And so fees are basically increasing with demand. And that becomes like a, like a breaking system, if you want to call it that, or a way to, to counteract any intent for a large amount of value to be exited in the system very quickly. That makes a lot of sense. That's actually a super cool design because like at initial, you know, my initial reaction to this design was maybe it does sound a little bit like Terra Luna, but it, it seems that you guys have a lot of breaks in place to make sure that, you know, there can't be this kind of infinite flow of, of new rune coming into the supply um, and mitigate people leaving their loans and the total value of outstanding loans going down uh, at a quick rapid pace. So that's awesome. Um, yep. Sam, do you have any questions? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually curious, what has the usage been so far? We probably should have uh, started with that, but I'm curious if the, the adoption's been pretty good. Yeah, uh, just re refresh my, my browser here. Uh, it is about, one second, uh, 300,000 rune has been bought and burned from the network thus far in the last, I think it's been, what, less than 48 hours since we launched this, this feature. So uh, you can judge that to be really good or really poorly, depending upon... <laughs> How, do you, how much do you think 300,000 rune, which is about what, half a million dollars or $600,000 worth of, worth of, worth of uh, buy and burn pressure on, on the asset? That's, that's, that's not too bad. Have you guys worked on any, like, uh, I know, like, you can make swaps between, you know, ETH and Bitcoin on XDFI wallet, for example. Have you guys, you know, tried to integrate this product offering with maybe some centralized exchanges kind of makes sense to me or maybe some wallet providers? Yes. Uh, to my knowledge, there's only been two UIs that have implemented this feature. That's like that's Lens, uh, L-E-N-D-S, and ThorSwap. Both of them had some some troubles in the first you know 24 hours or so, which might have contributed to the the current number of room bought and burnt. Um, I think more UIs will probably integrate and interface over time. Uh, that's just going to take you know months, probably, to be honest with you, before you get to that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Those integrations definitely take time. Sorry, Matt, do you have a question there? 
if I'm not mistaken, today you could only use Bitcoin and ETH as collateral and any of the native assets supported by ThorChain you can borrow as your debt asset. Are there plans to support more collateral assets and are there, are there plans to support more debt assets as well? Yeah, good question. So um, in true ThorChain spirit, in terms of how we run this this protocol as a community, we always start small and start like capped and, and, and cautiously. We, did, we never roll out any large features and just like YOLO it out. And so um, that also pertains to what assets are supported, just to keep it small and concise and, and limited in the early days when we we're first trying to like get our feet wet in a matter of speaking. So Bitcoin and ETH were selected because obviously they're the most high demand assets and we didn't want to get too big into like smaller cap assets, at least not initially. I think there is intention to, to expand to other assets. I think my personal uh, uh, two cents is that anything that's a, that's a layer one, uh, like main asset of any particular chain, we call them gas assets internally, but like Bitcoin, ETH, AVAX, Litecoin, Doge, you know, whatever the primary asset of each chain is, I would like to see those particular supported. In terms of debt assets, it is clear that, that well, I want to be clear that the debt is always well, a Tor, which is our own stable coin, right? Tor is always the debt that, that you are owed, but you may receive whatever asset you want. So the, the network will, from accounting perspective, track what your debt is in, in dollar bet terms, not in terms of Ether or USDC or anything else of that matter. It's specifically in, in its own uh, Tor asset. But the network doesn't allow people to actually hold Tor. That's why the market cap of Tor is always zero, right? At the end of every block, the market cap of Tor is always zero, right? And so uh, you can send what you want to receive, which could be Bitcoin, could be ETH, could be Litecoin. It could be, you know, some long tail, uh, you know, small cap asset on Ethereum. It could be arbitrarily anything. Interesting. Okay. And you just sparked another question and maybe this is a bad question, but I'm curious, how is Tor actually priced internally? Like if we saw an event where USDC or USDT depeg to the upside or the downside, like does that have any effects on how the actual mechanism works for ThorChain? Yeah, good question. So uh, the short answer is, is no. Uh, and the long answer is yes. Let me, let me explain how that is. So right now, I think that we have about three different stable coins that we're utilizing for the anchor of, of the Tor asset. Uh, maybe it's four. I can't really remember from the top of my head. And it uses the median of these three different pools. So if USDC depegs like it did, what, what, like six months ago, whatever the hell the number was, it actually has no effect to, to, to Tor whatsoever because it's looking at the meaning of them, not at the average of them or, or all of them combined, right? It's in other words, looking at it's like, it's, it's looking at the healthiest stable coins in the industry at any given moment. And that becomes the, the one that, it, that, that, it, that it pins on, not so much the unhealthy ones. And if one becomes unhealthy and becomes one that, that is healthy becomes unhealthy, it gets basically removed from itself in a matter of speaking. The only time it becomes a problem is if, if, if the entire industry and a majority of the stable coins in our entire industry depeg all at the same second or the same moment. That's when we run into an actual, uh, actual problem, in which case the network has the ability to remove uh, in a very quick fashion specific stable coins that are being problematic for one reason. So if they were all depegging except for uh, LUSD, for example, I'm just making one up for when I'm random, the network can just choose just to drop all the ones that are being crazy, you know, that are depegging and just 
pin off of LSD for this time being and then wait for, for the dust to settle and those things to become healthy again and stable again and then re-peg to those same things again. So it's I it's almost like a, a inevitability that, that Tor's ability to, to be priced to a dollar is more effectual than any of the stable coins that it's pinning off of because it arbitrarily migrates and moves from the one that is the most stable at any given moment, right? Who do you think is, are the main users of this product? Like, who do you, who do you think has the highest appetite for borrowing? Is it kind of an Ave competitor, or because you know there's no liquidations and no expiration and no interest? Is it something completely different? So I'm wondering how you think about that. Like, who's the main market? Yeah, um, that's a good question. And and to be honest, uh, you never know these things until the market tells you what the answer is. But the way that I look at it personally is that um, lending in DeFi is a horrible experience, right? And anybody who's taking out a loan, you know, on insert a DeFi protocol here, knows how stressful it is and how much it sucks. Because the vast majority of them, like you have variable rate interest rates that could balloon up to 20, 30% in any given moment. And that's stressful as all hell. You have to worry about your collateral value dropping, you know, so much. And then you have to worry about like losing all, getting liquidated and losing your collateral forever. That also sucks. Like so many people who take out loans are just like stressed all the time. They're just like constantly checking their phone at the price of ETH or the price of whatever to make sure they're not going to get fucked in the ass, <laughs> basically, right? And so anybody who's taking out a loan like this knows that the, how stressful that is. And I think that's one of the real values of what Fortune's design gives is that it's, it's really like the first stressless l- lending protocol, right? Because you, don't, you know what the, what the interest rates are going to be. It's 0%, hint, hint. Right. And you know that you're not going to get liquidated. So you can come back in 30 years if you want to and get back your ETH or get back your Bitcoin or whatever. It doesn't actually matter. So anybody who wants to um, uh, use this protocol to buy a car or buy a house, go on vacation, like do something real with your money and actually improve the quality of your life in one form or another, rather than just using lending as like a way to degen yourself up to a to a you know very risky, very risky profile, I think it uh, appeals to a different kind of user personally, to a, a longer holder of those assets rather than somebody looking to leverage themselves up over the next you know two weeks. I'm curious how you think about like you know Thorchain really is like the only place where you can do like trust minimized swaps between ETH and like native Bitcoin. So how do you feel? I guess this is more of like a theoretical question, but like, how do you view like, like keeping up with DeFi primitives, trying to innovate, but also like remaining pure to like the original ethos of Thorchain of like providing this like truly critical infrastructure for DeFi? Like, do you ever worry like, man, maybe we shouldn't be launching some of these features because like we've got something so good going? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question to ask. Um, I mean, technically, we're, we're not the only ones that do what we do anymore. Like Maya is a fork of Thorchain, and they've launched, and you can now trade through their, their, their UI. Chainflip is coming out. They're basically like a fork of our white paper, um, but a new implementation. Um, I think early on, what we had realized, what I, I had realized was that the hard work we did to, to create this kind of like multi-chain framework, right? And a way of securing assets, a way of observing observations, a way of, you know, um, getting a, a decentralized group of individuals to coalesce together to be able to do multi-chain uh, things without requiring a smart contract or these kind of things. Like that was extremely innovative. 
And I think in the early days, it made sense to use it for swapping. It was kind of like the most immediate use case. It's like, it's like when the internet first was invented, the most immediate use case of the internet was email, right? Sending little like digital mail uh, letters to people across a series of tubes, right? Like that was like the original kind of use case for the internet. But it doesn't mean that uh, that's the only use case for the internet, right? And so I think we are uniquely positioned as a protocol to do things that nobody else in the industry can reasonably or possibly do. Like, and there, and I, I truly believe that we, as a, as a project, are, are years ahead of most of the DeFi industry by a really good margin by the fact that we don't have MEV and we have uh, a slip-based FEMA, which is like revolutionary in terms of how it works. And we have cross-chain and we've got like so many things that we're doing that is like leap years ahead of the rest of the industry in such significant ways. Um, It'd be, it'd be a shame to take such advanced technology and just apply it to one particular use case when it's so possible to do so many other things. So I think long-term, uh, we have an interest to do things, not just swaps. We would like to do um, did synthetics, which is a big thing. We did savers, which is like single asset yield, something you would only see on BlockFi or Celsius, these kind of guys are now available on Thorchain today. Lending is another major component we've been talking about. Perpetuals is another thing we've been kind of discussing internally and how we can implement perpetuals in a way that could be groundbreaking just because it allows cross-chain perpetuals. That's, that's never been done before, the wrapped assets and that kind of shit. Even uh, a stable coin is something we've been very interested in doing. We, in the Tor asset itself is a stable coin, an algo stable that exists and running on the network. Tailing's been running on the network for over a year now. It's actually one of the oldest running algo stable coins ever to exist. Uh, but because you don't have an ability to, to buy it and hold it and trade it freely, it hasn't really kind of been utilized yet, but we've been proving the peg over the time span of the last year that just proved that the peg actually works extremely extraordinarily well. Uh, there's so much things you can do with this and, and it's okay to experiment and try new things. And the important thing is that, that when you're trying something new, you do it on a small scale to start with, validate your assumptions, validate that everything works the way you think it's going to work and scale things up with your confidence. As you get more confident that things are working well, things are going to work, you know, are heading in the right direction kind of scale up that that feature over time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So switching gears a bit, since you actually left this one off your list of innovations that you guys could do, but streaming swaps, it's uh, kind of an interesting innovation of being able to spread you know large trades across multiple blocks to get less slippage for, for the person actually trading. Can you kind of explain exactly how that works and if you've seen much adoption to date? Yeah. Um, so streaming swaps is the idea of, of a way of giving people more capital efficient trades, right? And another way of doing something similar would be like uh, concentrated liquidity, right? It's another way of, of somewhat doing the same thing somewhat. They're both achieving the same goal of being more capital efficient, but are, have different ways of, of accomplishing the same, the same end goal. For us, because we have a slip-based fee model, it's not profitable to make large trades through a, a shallow pool because the fees go up um, respective to the trade size. Whereas in XYK, it's like more or less uh, semi-static, right? Uh, of 25 basis points or whatever the hell the number is. And so we, we can't actually do that in a static kind of way because it would go against some of the security mechanisms of the network. So instead what we do is we, we take the trade and we break it up over time, over you know every block or every 10 blocks and make a kind of a sub-trade, right? And by doing that, you, make, you, you allow arbitrage bots to arbitrate the pool in between each individual sub-swap of your swap, right? And that allows you to have a much more capital-efficient approach. So today, in, in, in Thorchain land, 
you can trade from any asset to any asset and pay a five uh, basis point slip on your on your on your trade. That is monumentally huge. Like that makes Thorchain the cheapest place to buy any blue chip asset as you can reasonably think of. Right? It's actually better and cheaper and faster to buy and sell Bitcoin or Ethereum or other assets on Thorchain than it is on Coinbase, Binance, Kraken, in insert centralized exchange here. That's pretty fantastic. For me, there's the trade volume happening on those exchanges is monumentally large, obviously. And they're doing it in part because they have best price execution, right? But that all of a sudden changed with Streamsoft, and that was like about a couple of weeks ago. And from launching that feature, you ask the question, like, have we seen an increase in trade volume? And the answer is resoundingly yes. Right, the UIs that 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 chose to support this feature, um, like ThorSwap, for example, they saw a massive increase. Like I think it was like ten or fifteen x in in trade volume on their on their UIs. Thorchain itself is now like a top five dex in the world in terms of trade volume, just because this feature basically close to like five x the volume on the network quite significantly. Right, or, or I, I don't even know the exact number off the top of my head, but like. We saw a humongous increase. We saw massive whales coming through with million dollar plus trades and still getting five basis points on humongous trades. That's pretty incredible to think about. Um, and once we've had this feature for a while and more UIs integrate with it, more kind of you know wallets integrate with it, we'll probably see even more of an uptake. What's the highest fee that one could expect to pay on to, you know all eight swaps in their loan? So like taking out a loan or closing a loan, what's the highest fee that I might realistically pay? Uh, so lending itself, when you're opening or closing a loan, the fees you're paying is not using streaming swaps. So I just, just described it's just a single trade. So how much you pay, uh, how much you pay, excuse me, is relative to the size of the loan versus the depth of the pool. Right. And that can be arbitrarily, you know, pretty wide ranging. It could be a small amount of fees. It could be a humongous fee, like prohibitively large amount of fees, either on the open or on the close. Right. Um, that all depends on how large your trade is, which is, I think, which is why so far on, on the lending protocol, we haven't seen million dollar loans because it's just, it's too price, uh, um, uh, too price difficult to, to do that. The fees would be way too high to make it viable. Um, but I think long-term we think we're, we're intending to add streaming swaps to lending. Uh, there's a few complexities you have to work out, uh, some math problems to work out, but, but once you have streaming swaps built into lending, assuming the, the, the market is non-volatile, I mean, that there's not, you know, huge amount of trades happening for some, you know, um, bank run scenario or just like Bitcoin's going crazy in price and cause a lot of arbitrage and all this stuff. Assuming that this is just a, a regular day, uh, you could you could pay, you know, five bips, right, to, to open your, oh, sorry, let me uh, correct that. Uh, 10 bips on the in, 10 bips in the inbound and 10 bips on the uh, 10 bips on the open and 10 bips on the close. So that's still not not bad at all, right? Um, once we have that feature uh, set up, then I think you can set up a million dollar loan and not pay very much in fees at all. So if TVL got large enough, though, like let's just imagine a world where most of the Bitcoin and ETH is held within you know the Thor Chain node network. Does this feature become somewhat irrelevant or am I wrong in assuming that? Yeah, so stream swaps, it becomes less and less relevant. So um, the network will not allow 
of each individual subtrade of a streaming swap to be less than five basis points paid, right? Which means there's a minimum size, right? Which I don't know. I think it's like maybe it's like four thousand dollars per trade or something like this within um, the Bitcoin to ETH trade. If you were to make that one today, and so um, if the pool becomes really deep because it's like there's you know hundred thousand Bitcoin in the pool. I'm just making up a number here, but just imagine that's true for, for, for the moment. And the ETH pool has, you know, a million ETH in there or something like this. Then the five basis points of, of, of each and every what would be not $4,000. It would be, I'll we'll just call it $100,000 or $200,000, which means that if you have a trade that's lo lower than $200,000, streaming swaps is not available to you. You can just do it in a single trade and, and you're still paying less than five bips. So I think you're still pretty happy, right? But it just becomes not so useful for, to, uh, for you. The one say one caveat of this is that streaming swaps can be used in a way of doing a TWAP order, right? And TWAP just means time weighted uh, average price, I think it's called, or something like this. But basically, it, it's for basically whales who want to make large trades, but they don't want to, you know, be killed on the on the on the fees, and they don't want to cause huge price swings in the asset because their their trade is so large that it might push the price up or down in a particular way, and they don't want to do that. And so they might just say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to follow the market. Every hour, I'm going to make, you know, $10,000 trade for the next week and a half or, or something like this. And so stream swaps can be used as a TWAP. And so it might be used for that particular purpose into the future, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, even in that case, like you would still have to, in order to use it as a TWAP, you'd still have to be less than $200,000 you know, hypothetical limit they were just talking about. So it'd be harder to use it for that, for that particular use case in that example. But as a deep pool is to get really deep, which is the long-term intent of the protocol for obvious reasons, uh, stream swaps will become less and less valuable just because you can do everything in a single trade and still get like close to like five bips or less in, in, in fees. So last time we met on the podcast, we did talk a little bit about savers. You guys had just launched that that feature then. Um, how has that looked so far? Have you been pretty happy with the uh, the adoption there? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard to be to be bearish on savers. <laughs> if you look at the data, the the amount of value that came into the protocol and it was hundreds of Bitcoin, for example, that came in through savers, and it made the pools significantly deeper, right? And we've seen how a deeper pool inherently creates more volume, right? Like it's it's almost one to one practically. Um, but like as the pools got became deeper because people are depositing Bitcoin, ETH, and Atom and Litecoin, whatever else else it was, uh, the pools get deeper and more trade volume comes with it. So we've actually got to the point where savers became overly successful, and we actually had some problems where there was too much Bitcoin in the network, right? And we had to deal with that problem. We've dealt with that already, but like it it literally was so in demand that like it hit the caps of what we could economically allow which is obviously a good sign. Yeah, I would say that is pretty successful. <laughs> now, if I'm not <laughs> if, if I'm not wrong, uh, I think you guys activated protocol and liquidity uh in relation to to Savers Vaults and I don't really I'm not super familiar with what happened here, so maybe you could just explain uh you know why you guys activated that and what impact it's had. Yeah. So, uh, protocol and liquidity is the idea that the network reserve, which I mentioned earlier in the conversation, it's as um, uh, I forget the number, like a hundred and something million rune in it. 
that room is just kind of sitting there. It's not, it's not owned by me or, or anybody. I don't, I don't have a, it's not, it's not owned by a multi-sig or anything like this. It's owned by the network itself. The protocol itself has those funds and it can utilize those funds as it wants to. Right now it's primarily being used as block rewards to uh, supplement the pools and, and their um, APYs. And the idea was that as we add more synths into the network via savers, the, the LPs are taking on more risk, right? To, to back the value of those savers, right? And so uh, while half of the yield that this, those savers are making is going to the LPs, so they're being compensated for that, we wanted to make sure there was additional support if there was needed. And so the POL, in some sense, you can think of it as like the LP of last resort to ensure that there's always capital, there's always a, you know, uh, uh, liquidity in these pools to be able to support trading and support the save, savers and all this kind of stuff. So as the savers increases in terms of like the number of synths in the pool uh, increase, the LP, oh, sorry, the, the, the POL will add uh, rune into that pool as a dual-sided LP, so it's effectively buying, it's selling half of its rune into the into the uh, Bitcoin asset or Ethereum or whatever pool we're talking about here, and so it's constantly adding more at, when it needs to to support the pool, support the LPs, and support the savers. It will withdraw when it needs to as well. Once once there's you know not that many savers in anymore, we can start to withdraw and kind of uh, the reserve can kind of claw back its money. But in the meantime, it's deploying on those rune as, a, as just like a regular LP, basically, and earning a yield on that capital. And that capital obviously goes back to the reserve for the long term. Has that had a negative impact on profitability of other savers and LPs because now the protocol is, you know, earning some of that yield itself? Um. I mean, theoretically, yes. The I don't remember off the top of my head how much the Bitcoin pool the PUL actually owns. I think it's like but somewhere between one and five percent. I'm going to guess, maybe no longer, no more than ten. I'd be surprised if it was more than ten. So it's not like a huge amount, but it's it's there in a way to to help protect the LPs more than to take from them, right? Like when the LPs are experiencing a high amount of IL, right from price movements happening just naturally in the, in the market. The PUL is entering to be like a, a bodyguard, if you want to call it that, to, to take on some of the IL losses to help kind of spread the load in a matter of speaking so that they experience less of it. Do you see what I mean by that? So it, it is taking some of the yield from the LPs. Technically, that's, that's absolutely true. But it's also playing a role to help support them at the same time as well. That's the, that's the reason why we added it there to begin with, was to protect the LPs predominantly primarily, not so much to like, you know, siphon uh, income or yield. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Grow the pie instead of restraining the capacity of the network. Um, so you yeah. did tease for a second, like a, a perp dex. I'm personally super into that bullish on DeFi perps. So curious if that's actually a priority on the roadmap or really what the next 12 months of concentration looks like for you and the team uh, contributing to ThorChain. It is something we've been talking about. We, we don't have a strong design at this time. We have an idea. We have a high-level concept. We don't have a specific implementation details worked out quite yet. And I think there's a lot more work to be done in this regard. Um, hopefully, that can be done by the end of the year. Hopefully. That's my, that's my intention. Uh, between now and then, we also have other features where we want to ship first. Like, I think once we get lending all kind of settled down and iron out the bugs and that kind of thing, uh, we're going to work towards... Um, order books and order books would be very significant because it helps uh, increase capital efficiency, increase trade volume, um, 
it, it introduces Thorchain to a, a pro level trader, right? Rather than just like a simple swapper. Uh, that could be very beneficial to the protocol. We've talked about um, this thing called Cobalt as a way to scale security. We've talked about other features as well, but I think Perps is something that we're all excited about because we, we see the value of it. We see that it could generate a lot of income for the protocol, and we see that it could generate a lot of trade volume as well throughout the pools to create more uh, uh, income that way as well. So I can't get into any details about it because, to be honest, we don't have, we haven't figured out all the all the we have a a document written in the and 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 um in secret so to speak not secret but just private a private document that just lines out our current thinking but to be honest like when we were designing the lending idea like we went through about i think like 14 or 15 different designs and it took us a total from the first lending idea or like was probably two years ago and the one we actually using today when we just launched a, a couple of days ago we the ideation actually happened about a, a little, like, a little less than a year, about eleven months ago. So, like, we went through many, many, many iterations over a long period of time to to, to finally land upon a design that we felt really good and really felt really confident about. And I suspect that perps will be something similar that we'll, we'll go through, you know, fifteen, twenty different designs before we actually decide that this is the one that we should go with. One thing that's for sure is it'll be a lot easier to launch a perps dex if you have your own stable coin that's tradable. So I, I could see how Tor and uh, a perps dex might go well together in the future. For your like you mentioned synthetics, what uh what are you kind of thinking there? I assume it's similarly very early on and it's a very nascent idea, but wondering if uh, you can share anything. Um, well, let's pull that apart a little bit. So there's two ideas within Thorchain about a synthetic. One is what we call synthetics today is a synthetic asset that exists where the, the, its value is backed by the value of the pool itself. That's what we use for savers, and that's what ARBs use to ARB the pools very efficiently, very, very quickly. Um, derived assets is another type of synthetic, but that's going through a burn mint mechanism of the rune asset to acquire that. So that's backed by the protocol itself, right, or the, the rune asset itself. So those are two different ideas. But they are both similar in the sense that they are assets that, that mimic the, the purchasing power of external assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum and so forth and so on. But the way they are backed are structurally different. Synthetics have been around for a long time. It was actually in the original multi-chain chaos net code many, like over two, year, two and a half years ago, but it took about six months or a year for us to actually flip the switch on. Uh, and when we did, it was actually highly like effective, actually in increased the capital efficiency of the network by about 15x at the time, which was pretty amazing. I, I think uh, there was a report that I read at the time that like we were the second most capital efficient DEX in the world, second to uh, Uniswap. And uh, But derived, derived, derived assets are different, and that's the new thing we're using for synthetics, uh, for, sorry, for lending. Uh, those assets are not generally available. You cannot just buy them and hold them in your wallet or trade them, you know, whatever the hell you want. All of the derived assets that exist in the network are held by the lending protocol itself, not held by individual wallets. There is an ability in the network today that nodes could vote on to turn it on just to allow anybody to arbitrarily mint and burn derived assets as they see fit. Uh, and maybe that will happen you know, in some period of time, but that would also launch in, in publicly our, our Algo stable design, what we call Tor, and so that's a, obviously a very like big concept and a lot of like history behind algo stables. And there's a lot of like, you know, negative feelings about these ideas and so forth and so on. And I understand why I totally get it. But uh, at some point in the future, maybe six months, maybe longer, 
the community is going to have to come back and and have that conversation and debate of like, do we want to make derived assets, including Tor, to be a generally available asset to be traded and used and held and these kind of things? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is no. The community will have to vote on that in six months. But the benefit of doing so would cause a lot more buy and burn pressure on the rune asset, which is obviously a good thing. Uh, and the negative is, you know, it's taking on a new risk vector the network would have to take on is doing that. And so that's definitely an art, a, a discussion and debate that the community would have to have over the next maybe six months or so. Wow, that's a big idea. And you'd potentially be able to support any derived or virtual, whatever you're calling them, asset. And, uh, you know, if you have very good dynamic fees, which it seems, you know, you do with the pool depths and other mechanisms to make to incentivize people to, you know, not redeem these assets in times of high volatility. That's a that could be a huge addition to DeFi. So very excited to see where that goes. Yeah, I mean, I'd be very excited to see where that goes too. I think like what we've designed here is probably one of the first, if not the first, like vertically integrated entire DeFi stack. I mean, you got swaps, you got lending, you got single asset yield, you got synthetics, you've got uh, a um, stable coin, you've got uh, maybe even perps one day, like order books, like the whole thing, like every major thing that you can think of in the DeFi industry is implemented uh, within the chain, cross chain, and done in a way that's like completely different than everybody else, like in very innovative. Each of them, we could probably spend an hour diving into each individual idea of these things and explaining why they're so different and how they're like so much better than how the most of the industry operates. Super cool. I almost get like a cross-chain frax vibe. I don't know if that means anything or makes any sense, but like yeah, no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. It, I think the guys over over Frax recognize that if you can build a fully integrated system, you you have, you 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 pull in a lot more value into your ecosystem. And I think like Apple is like a really good example of that. Like Apple wants to build the whole pie themselves; they don't want to kind of like outsource certain pieces. And by doing so, you speak you say people just live inside your Apple world with your Mac and your iPod and your now your Vision glasses, Vision Pro, the hell fuck it's called, like. By doing that, you kind of corner the industry in, in a sense, and these all these things are integrated with each other to make it give you a seamless integration uh, experience that can be quite in, like, in, in, invaluable in a, in a sense. And I think I see the value of doing that ourselves. Uh, and because we're, we're, we can do things that nobody else can do, like cross-chain, for example, like, like do it well, not just like wrapped assets and all this bridging bullshit, but literally working with layer one assets, that is like huge right it, it it changes our mentality of how we think about blockchains to be these like isolated islands that exist across different you know separate universes but rather in a, a single ecosystem a single world a single blockchain system with all these different kind of citizens of this world in a matter of speaking and they're all there and participating in the same DeFi protocols as everybody else right and that becomes a much better system if you ask me yeah that's awesome well i know we're coming up on an hour here but chad like thanks again for coming on for the second time you're always an electric personality to have on here i love like i can like feel your enthusiasm <laughs> just bleeding through the screen and i love it but uh i will uh i'll kick it over to you to tell people where they can find you learn more about thor chain maybe get involved in the community yeah well learn more about thor chain. don't don't learn about me I, i'm i'm you know i'm boring but learn more about the thor chain product you can you can follow at thor chain 
There's a huge community around us that have really good tweets and that kind of stuff. You can find us on Discord. Jump in Discord, ask your questions. Uh, I'm happy to answer them. We also do a weekly, every Friday, we do a weekly uh, um, Twitter Spaces. Uh, follow the Fortune account for that. And you can jump on that. And we, every time we do, we do an AMM, uh, AMA every single time. So if you have any questions about lending, streaming swaps, algo stables, you know, perps, I don't know, whatever you want to ask about, I try to be there every week. And I try to answer every question that comes on that stage. Awesome, man. Well, we will catch you here in six months. I'm sure you guys will be building something uh, pretty groundbreaking that time <laughs> too. So hit you up later. Thanks again, Chad. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Chad.